listening to the teaching of Doxa Church. Doxa is located in Spartanburg, South Carolina, and our mission is to glorify God through the fulfillment of the Great Commission. starting a new series in Ecclesiastes. So I'm calling today's message, The Dirty, Deniable, Not So Secret About Reality. And in step with our scripture passage this morning, I'm going to take a cue from Solomon and give you the big idea right up front. Here it is. Life under the sun is empty. Life under the sun is empty. That may not have been exactly what you were expecting to hear when you came into church first thing this morning. And I know some of you have been really looking forward to this all week ever since I announced that we're doing a series in Ecclesiastes. Uh, I've been getting texts and I know know some of you just love dark humor. You love, you know, to (laughs) relish in the chaos. And, uh, And basically Ecclesiastes is like your favorite book of the Bible. Right? There, there's some of you out there for sure. I would call you a weirdo. Some people may call you a weirdo. Solomon would just call you a realist, all right? But for the rest of us, I would say, I would say most of you, but we don't really have your average church. But for a lot of you, you hear a title like this and a main point like this, and your natural response is going to be to get a little squirmish. Okay, here we go. What is David going to say this morning? Well, please hang on because I'm going to tell you also on top of the main point with the title, I'm going to give you the two main points right now. All right, we're going to get that too. These are the two main points that you're going to see in Ecclesiastes 1. Point number one, life is messed up. Point number two, the more you know, the less you get it. Again, this isn't your normal Sunday sermon, right? It really isn't so far, and it's probably not going to stay that way either. And I'm probably not making anyone more comfortable by giving you the two, two points. But here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to go on a journey through this book of Ecclesiastes. And I'm going to be real with you. Most people either love Ecclesiastes or they secretly ignore it and slash like hate Ecclesiastes because they just don't get this book. There's a bunch of Christians who are simply spooked by what they see in this book. And there's others who are completely in the dark about it. They've never really taken the time to read it. They've never actually studied it, and they just don't know. Maybe you've heard a nice summary of this book, and that's good enough for you. You just want to move on to some other things, because if you spend too much time here, it makes you unsure, it makes you uncomfortable. So a lot of Christians will not give this book a lot of run. It's a very quick read, but it's also dark, and there's vast portions of this, of this book that just make you wonder, is this really supposed to even be in the Bible? Like, what's going on here? I like it to think of it this way, if, if this can kind of put it in perspective for you. Ecclesiastes is like that emotionally heavy TV show that hits really, really hard. Maybe it's so hard that you don't really want to deal with it. You just would rather you know, watch Hallmark or a, or a cooking show or maybe sports. 
maybe sports isn't the greatest example there because that's like ultra competitive and you're like live and die gambling. I mean, who knows what you're doing with that? So that's a bad example. Um, but, but all of like, that's, that's really who, who needs Ecclesiastes. The sports people really need Ecclesiastes, I can say that. Uh, but, but you just don't know if you can handle that heavy of a dose of reality. So you turn on something else to numb it out, to ignore really what's going on. So we're doing that with Ecclesiastes. We're actually turning on the heavy-hitting show. And, and maybe that's why this isn't a very popular book of the Bible. Yet at the same time, it has its own little cult following. It, it really does. And if I can go one step further with our little TV analogy uh, and, and explain it to you this way, if Ecclesiastes were a supervillain, DC supervillain, it would be the Joker. If, if Ecclesiastes were a viral song in 2023, it would be Rich Men, Rich Men North of Richmond. And if it were a sitcom in the 90s, it would be Seinfeld. Because there's a lot of things in here. It's just like, what is going on? This is like, this isn't saying anything. It's, it's not giving me any clear answers. I don't know where this is going. And everything just seems to be meaningless and hopeless. There's so many confusing things that don't seem like they have a place in our faith. And if you're offended right now, this book is for you. Because this is not for the Christian who likes everything in a neat, tidy little box. It actually is the opposite of that. And I hope I have your attention. But people who want everything to make sense and everything to be just and everything to work out in the end, they don't really want to watch slash read and tune in to the message of Ecclesiastes. But I'm here to tell you, we all need a heavy dose of this book. As a matter of fact, if you take Proverbs, the other book, one of the other books that Solomon wrote, and Ecclesiastes, they're pretty opposite. They're, they're basically the antithesis of one another. Ecclesiastes uh, is written by Solomon, just like Proverbs, but Proverbs is like the ideological mountaintop. Ecclesiastes is the swamp of the valley. Proverbs is about wisdom and truth, and overall it's very positive. Follow these general principles, these these proverbs, these precepts, these guidelines, and your life is going to work out for you. Most of the time it will. Proverbs is convicting, it's challenging, and it's black and white. Go to the ant, thou sluggard, consider her ways and be wise, right? Uh, save your money, pass on an inheritance to your children's children. Raise up a child in the way they should go, and in the end they will not depart from it. Proverbs tells us what we want to hear. It gives us the principles that we need to follow. And it's true, and it's convicting, and it's challenging. I love Proverbs. But you could say Proverbs is almost cookie cutter. It's for the rule followers who like to put everything in their proper boxes. And it lays out the general formula that you need to follow. And it's not exactly promises, but it is pretty much self-fulfilling prophecies in a lot of sense, in, in, in many senses. Ecclesiastes, on the other hand, is not very black and white. And it's not linear at all. It doesn't have a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's cyclical. And, and Solomon is going to be making a point. He's going to come back later to the same point, And then he's going to come back again with a little more nuance in the same point. And he's really going to make you think. 
He's wrestling through the enigmas of life. But Solomon doesn't build this observation tower as a big grand obstacle on top of the mountain. His observations are at ground level where it gets really hot and sticky and gross. So here's the thing about Ecclesiastes. It's for the person who did their best and everything still went to pot. Okay, Ecclesiastes is for the person who did everything they could to love their child, to raise their kid up the right way. Yet their child still turned their back on them. Ecclesiastes is that book for the person who is just wondering, what is going on with my life? Why does it feel so messed up? I loved my spouse. I was faithful to them. Yet all I received was mental anguish and abuse. You need to go to a book like Ecclesiastes. And this is why Ecclesiastes is so important. I hope you're starting to see that you either dive into a book like this or you run away from a book like this. Because life under the sun is empty. And that is the dirty, deniable, not so secret about your reality. But here's why you need to strap yourself down and turn it on even though it's going to hit hard. Under the sun, we don't just live in a, sh a shiny, happy world. And there's a lot of Christians who've gone to church and the only piece of the, of the Bible that they really fully understand and embrace or maybe even have heard is the shiny, happy side. You follow God and your life is going to be great. A lot of people only get the Proverbs half and they don't take the time to go through and deal with the Ecclesiastes half. The church hasn't always done a great job of relating to the chaos and the confusion and the mayhem of life. So we mask over it. And I remember a couple summers ago when I taught a series in Psalms. Psalms has a little bit of the Ecclesiastes tone to it as well, but there's also a lot of Proverbs-esque uh, uh, Psalms in the, in the scripture. But as I I taught through uh, just 10 different psalms. We took like 10 weeks a couple summers ago, and I called it Summer Songs. It was a great study. I, I loved it. I got a lot out of it. Uh, most people loved it. But I had one person, a friend of mine, come to me after that series was over. He's like, you know what? I'm so glad we're done with the psalms. I'm just relieved that you're over, over it. And I was like a little taken back. You know, I didn't really know what to say to that. I was like, wow, I... I, I enjoyed it. <laughs> I'm sorry you didn't. I didn't say that. I was probably thinking that. Um, and maybe they were just being carnal and fleshly. Maybe they were just completely messed up. But you know what I think it was, to be honest? I don't think they enjoyed the Psalms very much because for them, in their season of life, everything was going to hell. Everything was chaotic. Nothing made sense. And in their internal space, they did not have any answers. They didn't have any solutions. And everything that Psalms offered just didn't quite hit the, what, the way it needed to hit for them in that time. And they didn't understand Ecclesiastes. And they needed this half to pair with Psalms. And I went back actually this week, and I listened to one of my sermons 
from that, from that series. I, I preached a sermon two years ago on Psalm 34 called Taste This Bread. And it was about David at one of the low points of his life. And you could go back and read that passage. It's a great psalm. I, it was a really weird experience for me because here I'm listening to a sermon that I preached two years ago and I couldn't remember any of it. And I, w- I was like, wow, this is actually good. Like, I was enjoying it. It was really surreal. I guess Solomon's going to talk about that in Ecclesiastes. Like, things come and go. Like, you know, this thing that was really helpful to you at one point, like, it's completely gone now. But I listened to that psalm and, and, that, and that message, and I, and I got back into the text, and it was really helpful for me. But I'll give you the outline. And, uh, and I still stand by it. It came directly from this powerful psalm. psalm. Point number one, when David was at a low point of his life, never stop praising God, exalt his name together, and fear the Lord with your actions. Now that's giving you something to take home and do and hold on to, right? Like we all need that. But there is another piece of scripture here in Ecclesiastes that doesn't give you the solutions that clear and that black and white. And that's the series that we're going to be in next. Sometimes you need to wrestle with life under the sun and you need to trust the one who created truth even though you're not feeling it. But wrestling through it is different than trying to just put a stamp on it and solve it. And that's where Ecclesiastes comes into play. It doesn't exactly solve anything. Now, don't get me wrong. The ending in chapter 12 is magnificent, but it's still not going to solve the enigmas of life. It's not going to solve the monotony of life. It's just going to give you an alternative to the endless cycle of insignificance that so many of us deal with behind closed doors. Far too many of us don't get this side of reality, and we don't even want to go there But God has put this in the Bible for you, and we all need it. So people who love sad songs need the full framework. The people who do like sad songs, or whether you do or don't, you need this biblical framework. And this book isn't just for the emo kids. It's also for the pop kids, and they probably even need it more. And you may not want to call yourself an emo kid or a pop kid, but you know who you are. And that's why I'm calling you to go on this journey with me. Now, I already told you the two main points. Life is messed up, and the more you know, the less you get it. But before we dive too far in, I want you to know what, is, what else is going on. There's a couple other introductory things that I need to tell you. Uh, because we're going we're gonna to read this chapter in its entirety. But even if I just read it right now, you would be pretty confused. So let me define a couple words for you and give you a literary framework of what we're stepping into. Because there are a couple of competing viewpoints in the way that you should be interpreting this book. And it's very easy to get bogged down on that before you even begin. So look at the first verse with me, Ecclesiastes 1.1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. So that's the title page. And uh, there's one very key word here that I want to pause on for a second, and it's the word preacher. That word preacher is where we get the word Ecclesiastes, and I'll tell you how. It's the Hebrew word, the kiloeth. And that Hebrew word is translated into the Greek as Ecclesiastes, which obviously you can deduct is our English word Ecclesiastes. It's just the phonetic transliteration 
of that Greek word, which is Hebrew, kiloeth. So that's where we get the name of the book. But here's where actually it's more interesting, and here's why I'm really telling you that. The Hebrew word that's translated preacher or teacher in some translations literally means assembler of listeners. And it's directly tied to the Hebrew genre of wisdom literature. So a lot of people will read this book and they'll say, hey, there's Solomon and then there's the Kilowath. And even people who are very solid, sound, biblical teachers, they'll be like, the Kilowath here, the preacher, it doesn't, you, you can't quite tell because of the way we translated it into English, but it is actually a different voice. It's a completely different person. So there's that person, and then there's Solomon who wrote the rest of the book. And a lot of people will interpret Ecclesiastes this way, and they'll say the Kilowath here is the one who actually has the sound advice at the beginning and the end. And all the stuff in the middle is from Solomon, and he's far from God. So it's basically doesn't even belong in the Bible. It's not true. It's just Solomon who's just gone off the deep end, and he has a very sad life here at the end. So it's a very popular way that people will take this book. Uh, I don't agree with that, actually. I, I don't take that approach, and I want to tell you right up front. I interpret the Bible historically, grammatically, and literally. That's the approach I take. So to me, this title page is not that complicated. The preacher is the son of David, king in Jerusalem. And if you look down to verse 12, you will see that the preacher introduces himself again almost the exact same way. Verse 12, I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And then he explains what he's doing in this book. What's his, what's his angle? What, what is he trying to do? Verse 13, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. And I have seen everything that is done under the sun and behold, all is vanity and striving after the wind. So, as I said, some people think there's two different voices. A commentator who tries to warn you about what you're, you're going to get yourself into. And, and then Solomon himself. When you look at the text, there's no denying. There's clearly a prologue and an epilogue. So, the prologue, to start off the book, is in verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1. The epilogue... The conclusionary thoughts are all in chapter 12, verses 9 through 14. And both of those stand alone. In my take, when I've studied this, I look at this, I believe both are Solomon, for sure. The, the, really, the question is when. When did Solomon write verses 1 through 11, and then verses, chapter 12, verses 9 through 14? Did he write it all at the same time? And he's using the third-person voice. So I would say it's really not that big of a debate to say that Solomon wrote the prologue and the epilogue later on. The, the middle of this book, the, the whole, the body of the book was written at a different time. And Solomon came back and he explained a little bit what he was doing in the prologue and he concluded it all very well in the epilogue at the end of chapter 12. It's both Solomon. It's just, we don't really know when he wrote the beginning and when he wrote the middle and when he wrote the end. Which leads us to the second big, big word that you need to understand, excuse me, the big word. And that's verse two, it's the word vanity. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. So 
he says that in verse 12 at, at the original starting point. And Solomon is telling us, this is why I wrote this. Because I'm looking out at my life. I've tried everything. I have done everything. He is the most wise man who has ever lived. And actually, if you would just turn back with me to 1 Kings chapter 3 for a quick second. 1 Kings 3, for those of you who are not familiar with King Solomon, this is, a, this is an important background to have. So 1 Kings 3, we're going to look at verses 5 through 15. This gives you an idea of who we're talking about. 1 Kings 3, verse 5. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart towards you. And you have kept for him this great steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord, my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, Because you have asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before, before you and none like you shall arise after you. I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no other king shall compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. And Solomon awoke, and behold, it was a dream. And then he came to Jerusalem and stood before the ark of the covenant of the Lord and offered up burnt offerings and peace offerings and made a feast for all his servants." So Solomon had wisdom. He had riches. He had popularity. He had it all. He was the most popular, famous, successful man in the history of the world. No one has ever been like him. But here he is saying, all is vanity. What is that word? What does that word really mean? I hope you're asking that. The original Hebrew word is the word hevel. And if you read five different Bible translations, you're probably going to read four different interpretations of that word hevel. And the truth is we don't have an exact English equivalent to this word hevel. But when you put all the different translations of the word together, you do get a really good idea of what it means. The ESV and the King James Version translate hevel as vanity. We just read that. The NIV translates hevel as meaninglessness. And you know me in the NIV. Like, I'll give it props when it, has, when it has a good translation, but that's just not the best translation. Meaningless is not the best idea here of the word. The NAS, the New American Standard, the Christian Standard Bible, translate the word futile. But the most literal way that you could translate this word hevel is simply vapor or smoke. So think about smoke. 
It's a real thing, right? You can see it. You can, you can try to grasp it. But if you try to capture it and hold on to it, what happens? It vapor, vaporizes away. You can't hold it. So the way to think about what he's saying here is life here under the sun is empty. It's like a cloud. It looks full. It looks big. But if you've ever been in a plane or gone skydiving, I mean, what's going to happen when you go through a cloud? You just go right through it. It's completely empty inside. And in my opinion, here's one of the coolest things about chapter one. In this prologue, Solomon comes back and he says, you know what? I'm going to define vanity for you. That's what he's doing in verses 2 through 11. And it's crucial to understanding the entire book. This, this, this word is in here 39 times. And if you're going to make it through this messed up world, you have to first get this dirty, deniable, not so secret about reality. Life under the sun is empty. And here's what he means by that in the text. He's going to define it for us, starting in verse 3. What is the definition of vanity? What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of latter things yet to be among those who come after. So don't get depressed about that. Let's just accept that fact of reality. That is vanity. All the things that we're working really hard on, in the end, at some point in time, under the sun here, are going to be forgotten. Everything under the sun is vanity and striving after the wind. Just think about that word picture, striving after the wind. Have you ever tried to just race the wind? <laughs> it's a futile exercise. Running after something you can't see but you know is there, that's life under the sun. It's full of nothing. And everything you do down here, everything that you're living for, eventually it's going to feel empty. But there's more to life than striving after the wind. Because your life isn't just meant to be under the sun. Your life is meant to go beyond the sun. And that's the key. Life down here under the sun absolutely is messed up. And that's our first point. Verse 15. What is crooked cannot be made straight. And what is lacking cannot be counted. I know we don't like to think about that. No one really wants to admit that, especially on Sunday morning when we look good. We're here at church to worship Jesus. And now the pastor's telling me, what is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. Man, 
I listened to a couple sermons on Ecclesiastes before I made my sermon this week. And I'll be honest, I didn't like them at all. I was like, this is so negative. Sermons on Ecclesiastes 1 were like depressing. And I'm a positive person. I'm naturally the type of person who wants to dwell on the good side. I, I am a glass half full person. I want to give you the benefit of the doubt. But I cannot deny that we live in an unjust world. It is not the Lego song, everything is awesome. It's not that way. We can't ever fix everything. And here's a, here's a hint, though, to where the end of this letter is going. But you have to really deduct this yourself through the Holy Spirit. Who's the only person who can make a crooked stick straight? It's our Savior, Jesus Christ. Here's the thing. The more you try to fix and understand it all, the more frustrated you will get. That's point number two. The more you know, the less you get it. Verse 18. For much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. It's like, this reminds me of the, the new church office we have. There's a church in town that, that said, hey, yeah, you can have this empty room. Empty room. It wasn't really empty. They weren't using it. It was a room that was not being used at all. And, and so they, they showed me the room. They're like, oh, yeah, here, take this. And, and we go in, and I was like, oh, wow, there's a lot of junk in here. Like, oh, wow, we didn't realize we had a Christmas trees from a year ago still in here. Uh, and I was like, okay, well, do you want me to just take this out? Like, do you want to save any of it? And they're like, oh, yeah, we'll, we'll move the couch, and then you can honestly just pit, pitch the rest of it. I'm like, okay, great. Thank you. Thank you so much. And so I, I come back the next day, start taking a few things away. Have you ever been in one of those cleaning situations where the more junk you take out of the space, the dirtier the space gets? Because all the junk was hiding all the grossness underneath? Like, I had no idea. And I, they, they didn't even realize. I don't think they would have done that. I, I'm not trying to say something negative about this church. They, they had no idea. But it was just their, their trash closet, right? And so I'm, I'm taking two loads to the dump, and now I have to go get the carpet cleaner. And, and, and Amanda put a fresh coat of paint on the walls. Like, we had to really clean this thing because the more you looked at it, the dirtier it got. That's kind of like knowing stuff about the world. Knowing things about life, learning about people. Oh, my word, the more I undercover, the more I understand, the worse it is. Wow, this is ugly. This is not good. You can't solve everything in this world. And here's what's really hard to swallow. You can't solve everything in your head either. You just can't do it. It's like the more knowledge you have, the more grief you end up with. And this is why people who really follow the news, and I mean the people who are really into it, they are glued in to what is going on in our country. You know, they either eventually just get really, really angry, or they have to just turn it off completely and walk away and go live on a farm in Texas, right? Like, you can't, you can't hold all that in. You can't deal with all of that. This is why T.S. Eliot once said, humankind cannot bear very much reality. But through a book like this, you can learn that you don't always have to find a solution for everything under the sun. That's one of the things that, that Solomon is telling us. You don't have to have a solution. 
There's a part of life that takes learning to cope and feel and grieve. And Ecclesiastes is going to talk about that very thing in chapter 3. It gives you permission to heal. It gives you permission to weep and to mourn. There's, time, there's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. Sometimes in life you have to find hope and healing through those things of just not solving it, but just trusting God anyway, even though it's completely messed up and you have no solution. In Ecclesiastes is what we're all going to learn is that so often you are way harder on yourself than God even is on you. And I'm not talking about sin here because God is harder on sin than you are on sin. God hates sin more than you hate sin. I'll just tell you that. Okay, so this isn't saying, oh, it's no big deal to God. What I'm saying is if you're a child of God and you know him, you know your loving father. What did we just see last week? In the parable of the two lost sons, he has open arms. He is ready to extend grace to you. He loves you. He has a plan for you. He, has, he is ready to extend grace upon grace to you. And for those of us who know God and who've been raised to perform, you've always been under pressure to measure up and do better and achieve this and achieve that. Those are the kind of people that have a really hard time with Ecclesiastes because it doesn't give you tidy, neat answers. Sure, you can scrap together something in chapter 12 and then just ignore the first 11 chapters, but that's not what this book is meant to do. So the question that you need to ask yourself as we go on this journey through the book of Ecclesiastes, am I harder on myself than God is on me? Am I trying to fix everything and am I trying to solve every single issue in my head that is only going to give me more grief? Because you're going to need what Ecclesiastes has to tell you. He gives grace upon grace. Our Father does that. And much of this life does not make sense. You can fool yourself into thinking you are doing great. But there's going to come a time when you have to stop being so positive And you have to accept the dirty, deniable, not so secretive reality that life under the sun is empty. It's broken. And we are all fallen. As Ernest Hemingway put it, life is a dirty trick, a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. But Ernest Hemingway isn't a Christian at all. He's no Solomon. And I don't think he's completely right either. It may sound like the message of Ecclesiastes from what we just read in verses 3 through 11. It's going to sound like it at times through this, through this book, but that's not it either. The subject of this book is purpose, your ultimate purpose. The feeling is emptiness and the tone is dark, but Solomon is actually still not, contrary to what you may be thinking right now, he's not completely negative about everything. Kind of is, but it's more complicated than that. You're going to see throughout this book that there are glimpses of light. Chapter 3 tells us something that I've referenced many times. You have eternity in your heart. You're not just meant to live under the sun. Chapter 5 says we can still eat and drink and enjoy life. There's actually a lot in here about 
enjoying the gift of sex in the covenant of marriage. You know, there's a lot, that's chapter 9. Then in chapter 11, verse 7, we are told this. Light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to see the sun. Thank you for being positive there, Solomon. So if a person lives many years, let him rejoice in them all, but let him remember that the days of darkness will be many. All that comes is vanity. And that right there, that verse, is the almost seemingly contradictory yet interlocking two points that make up the main juxtaposition of Ecclesiastes. It's found right there in, in 7 and 8. The things that you think will make you happy will actually leave you empty. But at the same time, those things are given by God and he wants you to have joy through those things. It's an enigma. But if it's just the stuff and Jesus is vacant and absent, it's going to be empty. And throughout this book, through all of these pessimistic and depressing observations, there is still hope through the darkness. It doesn't erase the darkness under the sun. The darkness will be erased one day over the sun. But through life under the sun, it is going to be empty. And you were only made to live, you were, you were only made to live below and above, <laughs> not just under. You have eternity in your heart. And that's why chapter 11, verse 9 says, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these things, God will bring you into judgment. So you don't have to solve everything under the sun. As much as you want to, you can't, and you can't even, really shouldn't even try. And here's why. It's because hope isn't found in the absence of darkness. It's found in the midst of darkness. And hope has a name. His name is Jesus Christ. Amen. Worship team, you can come up. And as you come up, I want to close out by saying Ecclesiastes isn't really trying to answer the question of is there life after death? That's not what this book is doing at all. Ecclesiastes is answering the question is there life before death? And there's one verse in this entire book that points ahead to Jesus. Crazy thing about Ecclesiastes, it never mentions prayer once. I have a hard time with that. I know a lot of people have a hard time with that. But it does mention Jesus once. I'll go ahead and, and tip you off. I would encourage you all to start reading this book. We're going to be here for a few weeks. And I would encourage you just to read and meditate on what Ecclesiastes says. As a church, I think it would be really good as we're in life groups and, you know, in our personal devotion time to just start reading through this heavy book, this heavy hitting book. But chapter 12, verse 11 says, the words of the wise are like goads and like nails firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. And I'll tell you right now, the more you read this book, that, that verse right there just pops out. It doesn't really seem to fit. A goad is a like sharp object that you poke cattle with. And, and the word shepherd there is absolutely pointing to Jesus Christ. Life under the sun is empty if you don't know Jesus Christ. 
if you don't have a shepherd. But you weren't created to stay under the sun forever. No one is. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And Jesus also said, I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. Everything under the sun, we're just going to understand the, the dirty, deniable, not-so-secret reality. Yeah, it's, it's striving after the wind. All of it under the sun is empty. But you're meant to go beyond the sun. any questions about the topic of this sermon, or if you would like someone to follow up with you about applying this to your life, please reach out to us at info at doxaupstate.church. You are loved.